welcome to The Motivated Mind, where I challenge you to expand your perspective on how to achieve a successful life through motivational lessons, reflections, and interviews with other motivated minds. What is up? Welcome to episode 237. Thanks so much for listening. It means so much to me. If I brought you any value, please be sure to leave a review and hit that subscribe or follow button. Don't be a stranger. Shoot me a DM on Instagram or Facebook. Let me know what you want to hear more of. And please be sure to share the podcast. I'm truly grateful for your support. Thank you. The average person spends $18,000 a year on non-essentials, but only $3,600 a year on personal development. Our mind is our most powerful tool. It's time to start investing in it. Learn exactly how to change what you think, believe, and feel, and get past self-limiting beliefs that may have been holding you back for years. Start investing in your most valuable asset, your mind. Join 143 other students that have already pre-enrolled in my Mindset Bootcamp course. Click the link in the show notes to pre-enroll today. Today we have another special guest that joins the pod, Steve Hoffman, a.k.a. Captain Hoff. He is the chairman and CEO of Founderspace, a global innovation hub for entrepreneurs, corporations, and investors with over 50 partners in 22 countries. Hoffman is also a venture investor, founder of three venture-backed and two bootstrap startups, and author of several award-winning books. These include Make Elephants Fly, Surviving a Startup, and The Five Forces. In addition, he served on the board of governors of the New Media Council, was the founder and chairman of the Producers Guild Silicon Valley chapter, and was a founding member of the Academy of Television's Interactive Media Group. Steve and I discuss creating a life you want to live and not holding yourself back, defining what's important to you, finding the desire to discover yourself, how the decisions we make create the person we become, playing it safe, thinking of our lives as a story, pushing our boundaries, and the one common denominator between all entrepreneurs, and lastly, finding your entry point. I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for podcasters, I feel like it's allowed me to be more creative because I've been able to simplify the admin aspect of my podcast and focus on developing more valuable and creative content. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com backslash podcasters to get started. 
think it was on your website. I saw this statement that you've had more careers than cats lives. So you've, and this is, this actually blew my mind when I was reading this, a uh, Hollywood TV executive, game designer, uh, voice actor, animator, electrical engineer, podcast host, author of uh, four books. I know you have, or maybe it's three, uh, a computer programmer. You've had, this is just such a variety and a spectrum of talents. Was all of this about exploring life for you and finding your true calling, your your passion, your purpose? Or are you someone that is just thrilled by seeking out the next kind of adventure and long-term kind of dopamine hit? Or is it about ADD? I just can't focus on anything for, for too long. Well, I will tell you, it's about all three. So I am somebody who loves adventure. Like I believe, like my mindset, when I, when I go into life, it's about how can I create a life that I want to live? Not a life that I am handed or I have to live to get by, but what do I want to do next? And then I try not to put, I try not to hold myself back. I don't want to say, oh, I can't do that because, you know, that's a crazy idea. Like it started when I was young. I was totally into filmmaking uh, as a kid. So I made 50 movies from the time I was in grade school through high school with all my friends. Some of them were animated, some live action, all these films. Uh, but my father kept saying, you can't go to Hollywood. You can't. You could never be a filmmaker. Study engineering. He was an engineer. So he was like, study engineering. And I listened to him like I went and I became an electrical computer engineer and I hated it. I hated it. And I could, this is the last time, like, I'm not doing this. Like I am going to just do, I actually got the degree because I'm somebody who like, when I start something, I have to like complete it. That's just my personality. And so I finished it. But then after that, I was like, whatever comes my way, that's the most interesting thing I'm just going to do. I love that. I love that because I, I feel that a majority of society has this struggle over what their parents think they should do and parents living kind of vicariously through their children or what your friends are doing. I mean, you even see this early on in like high school. I know I witnessed it when I was going to high school where everybody would get in these conversations of where are you going to college? Where are you going to college? And there you could see it in people's eyes that they were like, oh man, I didn't get in there. I wish I was going there because that's where all my friends are going. Or I can't have a great career. I can't have a great life unless I get into this Ivy League college. But that's BS. Yeah, I decided I didn't want to do things for the reason that everybody's doing them. I didn't want to do things out of fear that if I didn't do them, somehow, you know, I wouldn't be able to do what everybody else does. And that includes getting the right job, you know, going to the right college, you know, getting your resume, all, all these different things. So when opportunities came up, like I decided I'm just going to go to film school. And I went to, I applied, I got in in graduate school to film school. I was like, I'm going. And I did it. I went into Hollywood. I worked my way up the ladder. I got promoted, you know, within a year after graduating, I went from a reader, which is the lowest of the low position. All you do is read the scripts and like write little synopsis of them all the way up to a development executive. And, you know, I thought, wow, this is amazing. But again, I was in this role that most of my friends out of film school would have killed for like a year out of film school. And I was like, but I'm not being creative. I'm not doing what I want to do. I felt like I was taking a script from the agent and then, you know, we'd work on packaging it up with actors and then just pushing it on. But I wasn't really adding any of my own ideas to it. It was just, it was, it was just part of this giant machine that was Hollywood. So I quit 
I literally quit a year later. And my boss, who was this big Hollywood guy, Chuck Freeze, he was like very famous at the time. He was like, Hoffman, are you crazy quitting this job? And I go, I'm going to Japan and work on video games because I think, you know, I could actually create something, which is what, you know, I went to film school to be creative. And I thought, well, video, if I can't do it in film, games are the next big thing. Went off to Japan, did that for a year and then quit that. And I just kept going because I was in Japan. It was like an amazing experience in this, you know, it was Sega. And at the time they had just surpassed Nintendo as the number one video game company in the world. This was the nineties. And I was in their headquarters and it was cool, but it was so Japanese. <laughs> it was like, I could tell them like all, they came to me with all these projects. Do Americans like this? Do will Americans love this video game? And I would say, depending on my own personal taste, yes, Americans will love it. Or if I didn't like it, no, all Americans are going to hate this, which is really fun, you know, but after a while I wanted to make my own projects, but it was hard to manage a Japanese team where language skills were rudimentary. So I just said, oh, Silicon Valley is the next big thing. You know, that's like, I could go back there and just do it myself. So I quit that job a year later, moved back to Silicon Valley and literally launched my own video game company. At, or it was a computer game company. And at that early in the computer game days, that was the start of me doing startups. That was my first startup. So that was the leap from uh, kind of entertainment and engineering into actually running my own business. So fascinating. So what, what gave you this, this permission? So it, it sounds like for the longest time, you've had this inner voice in you that most people struggle to find even late in life. What was the breakthrough for you or what got you to say like, no, if this isn't of interest to me, if it doesn't spark joy, if I'm not really excited and passionate about this thing, I'm not going to do that thing. How did you come to that conclusion so early on in your life? So the, the one thing I came to the conclusion is we are the decisions we make. So whatever decisions we make is who we are. And you can't go back in time. You can't redo these things. And what's important to you? So to me, I listed out like what's really important to me as a person and I felt I wanted to be, I wanted to believe in what I was doing. That was the most, so you said the search for meaning. So a lot of this, it was the desire to do new things, to do exciting things, but also the desire to discover myself, to discover the universe, the world. And at the end of the day, the only person who can decide what you do is you, but you, most people restrict themselves. Yeah. They just say, I can't do it. Like, and so I decided to just take off those permissions. Like just say, no, you don't tell yourself you can't do anything. You might be hard. You might not succeed, but you can at least try. And I'll tell you, I had plenty of failures. So some things were success. Some things are great. You know, I had video I had games I put out that became big successes. Others that were complete failures. I did startups that were successes, startups that were failures. And through this process, it was hard. Like it's not necessarily easier. Like a lot of times, if you just want an easy life, you know, just follow the easiest path, you know, get your corporate job, stick with it, you know, look for promotions, do, you know, jump to the next corporation, you know, that's the safe way to do it. But if you really want to challenge yourself, to push yourself, to see what you're capable of and to see what you can do in this world, you're not going to get it there doing it that way. Yeah. Well, what's so ironic about this play on, um, or this idea of playing it safe 
ultimately I feel a lot of people that I've interacted with over the over the years aren't looking for safe. They like the maybe they're content or they enjoy kind of the easy going, but they ultimately want more. And ironically, in order to get more, you need to put yourself in a more risky position than you are today. And that's the only way you blossom and explore and find these things just as you did and say, oh my gosh, this is exactly what clicks or what I've been looking for. But it's ironic because playing it safe actually harms us a lot more long-term and it's that short-term well it's safe today but what does that do five ten years that compounding effect of playing it safe is a is a detriment i think to many people long term i remember when i was in film school i met this guy and he was like you know i always want to create movies but i ended up just going into advertising and doing kind of these infomercial type things and he just goes i got stuck in it and I regret it. Like, I wish, I wish I could go back. I didn't want to become that guy. And being safe, I think you end up becoming whatever your definition of safe is. So if that doesn't align, so for some people, it's fine. Like I tell them, like, if you're totally comfortable with this is who you are, and this is who you want to be great. If you want to do more with your life, if you, you have to take those chances, like you said, risk and reward. Like if you have bigger dreams and bigger things you want to do, it's going to be a bigger risk. And you, you know, chances are you're going to fail. But fun part is, is that the whole failure can be a story. Like when we read novels, I, I, I like to, this is my mindset. Like I want my life to be a novel. I want my life to be a story. And I don't want it a boring story. I don't want it a story I've seen a thousand times or a story that I can predict the ending. Like in 20 years, I'll be here and I'm waiting for my retirement. No, I want, I wanted it to be a story, a dramatic story. And dramatic stories have, you know, super highs and super lows and you never know what's going to happen and all these things. So that's what I got. Like that, my life is still going and still like crazy, you know, doing crazy things whenever they come up. If there's like if somebody came to me tomorrow with an amazing idea and and I just wanted to do it, I would just do it. And that's like I run this company Founder Space now, which helps entrepreneurs. Like so what I do is I sit with them and they have these dreams and they want to do it and I'm pushing them to go further. And I tell and I've seen it in the real world. Like the entrepreneurs that play it safe, the ones that that are conservative, they almost always fail. Because you never really break through. Like if you're going to break through, it has to be something different. It has to be something nobody's tried. You have, otherwise you're just like everybody else and you might have a minor success, but you're never going to have a big success. So you look at the crazy ones out there, like the Elon Musk's of the world who are kind of nuts. Like they're like, we're going to Mars, even though every scientist in the world says that's impossible. You're not going to get a million people on Mars by 2035 or whatever date you pick out of the hat. He doesn't care. He's just like going for it. And, oh, you know, Phil Knight, who founded Nike, has a book, Shoe Dog. It's a great book. And it just shows you the entrepreneur's mindset. Like, if he risked his company literally every month because he would be have more money going out than he had coming in for years. And if, and if he could have made those payrolls, he would have been out of business. But somehow, like, he just, he couldn't help himself. Like, he had to keep, like, pushing it. Like, you know, expanding Nike, you know, go from tennis shoes, running shoes into other shoes and then other sports equipment, you know, always pushing the boundaries. Yeah, you, you hit on so so many good things there. The I think we generally 
put walls or borders around what is possible. And then that becomes to what you had just mentioned earlier, you know, playing it safe, whatever safe is for you, then that's what your reality becomes. Those are those borders that we set up for ourselves. And then we know nothing beyond those walls, but yet we realize once we shed light on it, oh my God, I am possible. And you hear this, not just in business, but anything, you know, long distance runners or, you know, some of these amazing athletes that thought they were at their breaking point, but yet somehow broke through that barrier and they're unlocked this whole other tier of, wow, this is possible. I remember back in high school, I went hiking through the notch in New Hampshire and I'm here in New England and the weather there is some of the worst in the United States because of the way that the weather pattern is in there. And I remember doing this winter hike with, I think it was 10 other students in high school. And there was like two feet of snow, maybe more. And we have these heavy backpacks on, they're like 50 pounds. And I remember a quarter into this hike thinking to myself, and I'm probably a junior or senior at this point in high school, thinking there's no way I'm making this to the summit. Is If this is what the rest of the hike is like, there's no way I'm going to push through. And we were also fighting time because we had inclement weather and well, you have this, the sun, you know, not gonna be around all day. And I remember telling myself, sub, like subconsciously, if this is the mindset I'm going to have, then I'm sure as hell not going to make it to the summit. So what mindset do I need to have in order to get to that goal that I want to achieve? And there was a point when I allowed that to happen where the exhaustion and just taking every single step and sinking into the snow and just being cold and the wind howling and all of these other elements that just faded away anymore because they became irrelevant in the light of opportunity. And so everything else just faded away. And now this thing, this goal was way more possible and irrelevant of how deep the snow got, how cold it continued to get through the, the day getting later. All of those things were really irrelevant. They were ultimately going to slow me down. But if it was an inch or a mile of progress, it was progress nonetheless. And that's ultimately what mattered and, and got us to the summit. And we ended up achieving it. That's a great story. And I will tell you, like being an entrepreneur myself, a serial entrepreneur, working with all these entrepreneurs, I have also read a lot about studied famous entrepreneurs. And I put a lot of this into my book, Surviving a Startup, because it's like you say, it's like survival. Like either you're going to do it, you're going to survive, or you're not. And the one trait that people have who end up succeeding, almost always, they share just this one trait. They might have, they might be a quiet personality. They might be an outgoing personality. They might be, you know, super analytical. They might be super passionate. All those things are variable. But the one thing that they have is that they are able to take the pain. Like they don't, they literally don't expect it to be easy. The people I see who, who really don't accomplish great things in life is they expect to be handed it. They expect it to just happen to them. Like somehow, if I try this, everything will magically happen. That is not how the world works. The world, it, you've got to be prepared for a brutal ride. The world is unforgiving. It is going to throw things at you that you would never anticipate. Like they crush, I, like in my first venture funded startup, the first time I went out to raise capital, I'll give you an example. We like literally knew nobody. I knew no VCs. I spent a year trying to raise money, talking to investors and for this new like interactive TV show, which was sort of my combination of tech and gaming and all this stuff. 
but our money was very limited. And we were like, we had promised MTV, we would do this incredible thing that had never been done. Like on a, we had a 10 person team with very little money they were giving us. We promised them that we would synchronize live television across the country to the internet frame accurate. So people could play along in a game show in real time and not cheat because that had to be frame for frame accurate. Like we didn't know if this was possible. Uh, finally found a venture firm out of LA that would give us the money. We negotiated the whole deal. We ran up 60K in legal fees, which was way more than we had. And at the last minute, they turned to us and said, you know, we're not going to give you your $5 million right now. <laughs> they had promised us. We're going to wait until the show launches, and then we're going to give you the money. We were like, oh, my God. We, we didn't know what to say. They were the only people we had. So we said, okay, <laughs> because that's all you could say. And we got ready to launch the show. And now we're super out of money. Like literally, we had to put all the server. There was no AWS or cloud or anything. We had to put these servers in ourselves. And MTV executives were like freaking out because the first time they trusted a small company. And they're like, television doesn't crash. Like these things don't crash. You can't crash. At the same time, their marketing people were putting ads up every day. On, on TV, like multiple times, telling people this big show, Web Riot, is coming and it's going to be huge. We go to launch that show. It goes live. People start to stream in. And this is the early days of the internet. Tens of thousands of people coming, hitting our servers at once. Like we had no way to test it beforehand. There were no solutions for that at the time. We couldn't really understand what would happen. And then all of a sudden, our system goes down. Now, our system went down. And I knew the venture guys were watching this. I knew MTV was about to like literally kill us <laughs> and it's down. And then the phone rings, pick it up. It is a senior vice president of MTV Interactive. And he starts cursing at me like, what the blank, blank, blank is going on? Like you told us this would work. And I was like, honestly, I don't know <laughs> because I was the CEO. I don't know. I call uh I call our engineers, let me talk to my engineers. I hang up on him, call the engineers. And they're like, you know what happened? We have, there's a denial of service attack. Hackers saw all those ads and they're trying to bring us down. In fact, they brought us down. So there was, we had no special firewalls or anything at that time. Like they didn't exist. Like, so what we manually typing in IP addresses and blocking them and boom, five minutes later, it goes live right before the show actually gets on air. So it goes live and it runs flawlessly. But the story doesn't end there. So MTV, they, they were so happy. Like it worked, we pulled it off. Like, you know, they, it was hackers and we even, you know, beat the hackers. Call back up that venture firm, like that promised us the money. Now we're totally out of money. Like we promised us the money like a couple months back. I said, okay. Like our deal was done. We negotiated the whole contract. It's all done. We signed it, like send us the money. And you know what they said? They said, well, we thought about it and we'll give you the money, but only if you cut your valuation in half. Now we just launched a flawless show and we did more than we ever told them that we could do. Like we pulled this off and they're screwing us. So I had a decision to make, like you have decisions in life to make. I could, the rational decision was just to bite it and take their money because we had nothing else. And also it was like literally between Christmas and Thanksgiving. And that meant all the venture capitalists were going home. 
and they weren't going to be back till mid-January or February. Like literally, they just shut their doors in Silicon Valley. Or I could say, screw you, like, <laughs> and just walk out the door. And I chose the latter. I was like, we don't want you on our board. We don't want you in our company. You guys are evil. Screw you. <laughs> so we walk out the door. And you know, that felt great until I was outside <laughs> because we had no money. We couldn't even keep the servers working. Couldn't pay the, the people we had. Not, it was like a total disaster. It felt good for five minutes. And then we were like in the world of pain. You know, at this moment, you can give up. Like you can literally say it's impossible. And literally it was impossible to raise money at that time. I was like, we can't. We have to keep, just like you on that trip, like hiking up the mountain. I was like, we have to keep going. So I, you know, I begged our employees. I like, just keep, and they had families and kids and things. I was like, just keep working for free. And they were burnt. Like our engineers, we had only three engineers. Like they'd done this whole miraculous thing. And they were just like totally burnt. I was like, you got to keep working. Like we got to keep this, this going. Begged our hosting provider, please don't pull the plug on us. We'll get the money. We'll get the money. And I went out. I just kept going out to try to raise money, but nobody was around. Nobody wanted, there's one company that would talk to me and they weren't even a venture firm. It was called Macro Media. And they had just launched this new product, brand new, called Flash. Flash, if you recall, and this company became Adobe. So now we all, I'll just call it Adobe from now. Now we know it as Adobe. But they had launched Flash and the president said, you know, if you can get your show working with Flash, we'll, we'll, we'll invest. And I was like, can you do it? I was like, absolutely. Like we can do it. I didn't know. I talked to my, like, you're just like, I'm going to get up that mountain. We're going to do it. And, and I go, you know, let's do it. Let's do the deal. And then he goes, but we can't lead the round. We have to have a real venture firm lead the round. I was like, oh. so you're telling me you can give the money, but you can't give me the money. All I could do is wait until, you know, mid-January. And, he, and then he promised when the VCs come back from CES, the big show, I will start introducing you. So he took me into the, like, one VC. And the strange thing was, you know, instead of just recommending I talk to him, he actually went to the pitch with me. Like, and I'm like, why is he here with me? What's he doing? Like, sitting with me. And the reason is because he wanted to see if the VC poked holes in our business, he was going to dump us. <laughs> he wasn't going to invest. So I knew like I have one shot again, like I have one shot to get this company funded. And it usually takes months to close a deal, all these things. But I just gave it, I pitched my heart out. The first thing I did as I learned from my mistakes, I didn't tell them we we're totally out of money because you tell a VC at the, and they squeeze you like the other guys, they knew we were out of money. I uh, didn't count on him. Like I was like, you know, if this doesn't work out and getting somebody else. And I just pitched and pitched and pitched, told them all the great stuff. And at the end of the pitch, I waited. And you know, he, he, he had a stone face, like completely stone. And he just goes, hold on a minute. And he goes, I got to go do something. He gets up and walks out of the room. So I'm sitting there with the president of Adobe at the time, like looking at him. We're like, what's, you know, <laughs> what does that mean? And I, my heart was sinking. He comes back into the room and he literally hands me a piece of paper. And he says, here's your term sheet. Here's the money. And I go, what? And, and he goes, but we're not going to give you 5 million like you asked. We're going to give you 7 million. And my heart jumped through the roof, like 7 million. Oh my God, more than we asked for. Like, and at the same valuation that the other guys turned us down. But I didn't, this time, 
I kept my wits about me. I know venture capitalists. And I was like, I know it wasn't the amount of money. We needed the money yesterday. <laughs> and I couldn't tell him how desperate I was. So I turned to him and I said, you know, we didn't ask for $7 million. We only asked for five. But I'll tell you what, we'll take $6 million if you can get this deal done in two weeks, which is with lawyers, corporate lawyers, it's, it's like almost unheard of. Like these deals usually take a long time from a venture firm because there's so many terms. And he looked at me and says, done deal. We had the money in the bank. So, right, you know, when all things were hopeless, we closed that deal. I will tell you, it's not the end of the story. Like the story goes on and on and on, ups and downs and all these. I mean, I could talk for an hour about this. I won't. But just let me say that is life, right? That is life when you're pushing your limits. I find it awesome how you're like, I don't even know if this is going to work. I, I will say it's going to work and then we're just going to figure it out. That's always the most exciting piece. I think to, to any really great startup is they will tell you it will work, but ultimately they're like, we don't know how it will work, but we'll figure it out along the way. I'm really curious, linking back to what we were talking about earlier, what kept you in that mindset, in that focus of, yeah, we can do it. Just always saying yes, rather than saying no. Was it the experience that you already had that, hey, we figured this out before. Why would this be any different? You know, what kept you to to say, I'm just going to say yes, and we'll figure it out with the devs in the background, and we will get to where we need to go. And then too, the second piece of that is back to your point about your team working for free, Going to individuals that are going without pay and telling them confidently that we will make it puts people in a very uneasy spot, right? There's a lot of guilt that sits there. There's a lot of stress, anxiety, all of these things that come you know, uh, on top of you. What kept you a, a straight face and a confident face pushing forward with those people, telling them externally, the VCs, that we'll make this work, and two, internally, a team like, we're going to get there? So a couple of things. So one- what allowed me to say we can do this when clearly I had no evidence that we could do it was desperation. Like if, if we can't do this, we have nothing. Like we aren't in business. Like if this is our only path, if there's one, you know, cliff you have to climb and it's incredibly steep and incredibly dangerous, but either you're going up that cliff or you're not getting up the mountain. Like you, you have failed to do what you do. So you, if you're the type of person who is a mountain climber, you say, you have to say, we can do it. Because if you say you can't do it, it's over. Like you're done. So there's certain times in life where every, all decisions narrow down. Like you literally don't have, like we had such a short time horizon. Like if we couldn't deliver on that, couldn't happen. And I know like our engineers are really smart. I know things are possible. So I know we'll figure out a way if we have to, but I don't know hundred percent. You never know that. Like you always, there's this part of you that's like, you know, you might not be able to do, like you can say these things and you can't do everything. This seemed like a reasonable bet given the situation we were in. And I think as a CEO, as anybody making decisions in your life, like you have to look at the options you have and take the best path. That's it. With my employees, again, I didn't know, like it, it seemed like if we could get funded in January, like I had no, no venture people on the line at that time. We had been trying a year and hadn't got funded. We had one deal and they screwed us over. We had no backups, nothing. But 
again, it was the only path forward. There was no other way. If they stopped working, our, our servers would have shut down. MTV would have been furious. Nobody would have invested. We would have shut down the company. That are the other things. So I'm like, you guys, we've built this together. We believe in it together. Like, this is our baby. You know, I, I think, you know, the great thing is, you know, what leaders need to do is it's not your project alone. It's all of your project. Like you're all doing this together. You're all investing your heart and soul in it. And if you have that environment in a company, then people step up to the plate. They just, they, they want it as much as you do. And also if you pick the type of people who are like that, and I always say like, I, you know, write a lot of books. I write about it in surviving a startup. The most important decision you ever make when you start a company is the people you pick. Because you're always going to come to a point like this. There's always going to be a point where you are totally reliant upon those people. Like they're, it's not no matter how great you think you are, it's actually them who's going to get you to the next level. And if you pick the right people, they'll be there with you. And if you don't, they'll be out the door and, and, you, and you will die like so many companies. Such, a, such an awesome correlation too between the people you pick in your business as well as the people you pick in your circle outside of your professional career. Absolutely. I like to say your mindset, nobody exists in a bubble, right? You, you are the people you surround yourself by. Like they become you, they influence the decisions you make. You look at what they do. Everybody, you interact with them. They support you, you support them. If you want to be, do amazing things in your life, surround yourself with amazing people. Like it's the, that's the first thing you should do. Don't go like running off to do something, right? First, get your, get in this with these people you think are truly amazing, better than you, smarter than you, more capable than you. And, you know, stuff will come up, like opportunities will come up just out of those relationships. I remember working for my first startup and the CEO, the, the founder slash CEO, his father was very successful with a company called Plant Healthcare in Europe. Uh, and he made some amazing strides and success with that business. And then he uh, stepped into the cannabis industry, which I got started in nine years ago, uh, the legal cannabis industry, I always like to, to say. And I remember when this guy walked into the room everybody's head turned when he spoke, everybody would listen. And I remember I started out with sales and he came in and this was probably a couple of weeks after being there. And he goes, how many sales you get? And I immediately froze. I knew nothing about the products. I'm just getting it, you know, uh, trained up by myself on the CRM. We only had four employees, maybe actually three at that point. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, should I have made some sales in progress already? I'm so brand new to the job. But after I realized, I started asking myself some questions like, why was he intimidating? Why did everybody you know, turn their head and listen to this guy when he walked in the room? And then the question from there became, how do I get around more people like that in the future. And so I sought after, you know, my first mentor and spent, you know, every uh, every month at least one dinner or lunch sitting down with him and just picking his brain and passing value in both directions of course, the mentor, the mentee. It was the best thing I could have done and ever since then I have made it a goal a priority to surround myself with people that push what I think is the edge or the boundaries that I have 
I may have subconsciously set for myself. And it's always opened up more like, oh my God, that's possible. Or they say something that just clicks and the whole drive back, you're just thinking to yourself, I can't believe I just heard that. I can't believe that that's an option. I can't believe that that's a possibility. And it's so beautiful when you do have the opportunity to continue to seek out these individuals. And we've got so many resources today in 2022 to do that because our great-grandparents didn't have those options, did not have a computer in their pocket in order to connect with these people halfway across the world. And we've just got to be so grateful that we have that opportunity because that didn't exist years ago. We have so much at our fingertips, literally, like you said, you know, incredibly powerful machines in our pocket that can connect us with literally luminaries around the world. Like I've gotten in touch with all these amazing people in all these different countries, literally just, you know, by reaching out or doing something, doing a podcast like this, and then people can now connect with me, you know, personally. And then we also have all the information in the world. Like there is nobody technically who has more information than you, like maybe if it's top secret or things like that. But if you try, the information is out there. So if you surround yourself with these truly amazing people, and this is what I say, like I say, I don't even care. Like if you want to do something in life, a project, a startup, you know, an adventure, whatever it is, don't worry about the idea. Like the idea doesn't matter. Like at the beginning, you'll probably change your mind like six times. <laughs> like most startups, like they, they try one thing and they try another thing. And it's like down the road that they actually figure out what, what is the big win. I say, just focus on the people, the really interesting people doing really amazing things, get into what they're doing, form relationships with them, you know, start looking for ways to collaborate and boom, all of a sudden you'll see something that you never thought was there, that you would have never thought of alone. And that can totally change your life. Yeah, action creates a lot of insight into what is possible and things that you never even knew. Businesses, I can't, I mean, I'm preaching to the choir on this one. How many times a business pivots from day one to where they are today? It's unfathomable that they got from A to now, you know, E at that point. And I think that's a beautiful thing about life. Movement and action always creates opportunity and gets you in a different direction or the direction that you ultimately need to go, but you didn't have the data points those didn't exist prior to action. Right. And you can't see them. Like when you're starting a new adventure, a new project, something, a company, you, you don't know what you don't know. You literally don't have enough. You have to dive into it. That's why I'm saying, you know, when I, now I preach, like when, when some, an entrepreneur comes to me at the beginning, at the very early stages, I'm like, don't lock down on this idea. We don't even know if this works. Like there's no proof. Like you just think it does. I like, it's much better instead of picking one idea. And then you feel like if the idea doesn't work, you're a failure. And you know, all these self-doubt and criticism comes up. It's like, don't wedge yourself to ideas, wedge yourself to a path, like pick a direction where you want to make a difference and learn everything about. So like the fishing industry, let's say I want to make the fishing industry more sustainable. Like I may have an idea, Maybe a great idea, maybe not be a great idea. Like, I don't know, you know, people from the outside tend to innovate because they'll try things people on the inside just won't. Like people, so like the fish, I like the fishing industry example because that industry is decimating our oceans. That industry is, you know, putting out tons of pollution. That industry treats their workers horrendously. Like they have slave labor ships, all these problems, right? It's an awful industry. Are they going to change themselves? Never, right? So it's going to take somebody from the outside. But you 
could have the best idea in the world on making the fishing industry better, more sustainable, all these great things for the world, less polluting. And you can go to them and you know what they'll probably say? They'll look at your great idea and they'll say, we don't want to do it. Like, we don't care about that. Like, we want more profits. We want, you know, a faster time, you know, catch more fish. We want this. We want that. So you, you, the really great ideas come when you, when you say, I don't need one idea. I need, I want to change this industry. I'm going to go into that industry with 20 ideas, you know, 10 of my own, 10 from other people like around me. And then I am going to find out what that industry needs to actually change. Like what, what, what it will take if we can get to and look for the intersection, intersection of a great idea that will make the world a better place and something that people inside that industry will actually do. And that's your entry point. That's your starting point to do big change in the world where, where otherwise you wouldn't. That's the, that's the mic drop there because that was so beautiful. I, I feel like so many people, hundreds of thousands, millions of people need to hear that exact point that that intersection that target for starting because i that's probably one of the biggest dms that i that i get i don't know what you know my passion is or i don't know where to look and and then people just kind of are picking up a deck that was you know just flicked out from their hands and they're just grabbing at straws or copying other people, things they've seen other people do. You don't copy other people, go into the world and you'll be original. <laughs> like if you go into the world and then you start creating with yourself and your full creative in an open mind, try this or try that, we'll figure this out. And other people around you who are equally or even better than you are. And then you start to figure things out and see things you, you were just completely oblivious to, completely blind. Yeah, uh, that's so on. That's so on point. So Tell us a little bit about Founderspace and, and what you guys are, are doing over at Founderspace and where can people find you? Where can people find the book? I want to end on a note that, that drives some attention towards your side. Great. So if people want to reach out to me, super easy to find. So I just go to founderspace.com and you can see everything we're doing there. Like we are our global organization. In fact, tomorrow I fly off to the country, not the state of Georgia to work with startups in Georgia and, the, and the meet the prime minister and work with the government. We're a global organization. We have all across Asia, different partners all across Europe. And uh, what we want to do is help entrepreneurs. So if like you go to founderspace.com, tons of educational materials, like online startup programs, all the stuff, they're my books, Surviving a Startup, and I have Make Elephants Fly and The Five Forces. Those are all different books that are really geared towards people who want to do something in the world. And then if you want to reach out to me personally, you can email me from Founderspace. They all, it'll get to me if you put my name in there, or you can, I'm on every social network. So search for Steve Hoffman, Founderspace. A great one is LinkedIn to connect with me personally. Just go there and you can message me. Thanks for listening to The Motivated Mind with your host, Scott Lynch. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into finding the desire to discover yourself with Steve Hoffman. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at the motivated underscore mind and on Facebook at the motivated mind podcast. Don't forget to join me every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. I love you all. And thanks so much for listening.
motivated mind is a legacy division.